Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As more states are starting to reopen, are you getting ready to travel during the pandemic? There's a lot to know about testing before you get out there. Some places require proof of a negative test before you arrive, and other locations require that you quarantine before you can move around freely. And then there's the big question of timing. You don't want to take the test so early that the results mean nothing, and then you want to take your test with enough time that the results come back before your trip. For more on what you need to know about testing before travel, we'll speak to Natalie Compton, reporter at The Washington Post. I think like everything with the pandemic, this is a confusing topic that doesn't have a really straightforward answer because getting a test is not as easy as going and getting a flu shot right now, right? They are still figuring out how to treat coronavirus. They're still coming out with new tests every day. In some places, you can't get a test unless you are sick or a doctor prescribes a test for you. So it is something that the CDC supports getting a test before you travel because it could reduce the risk of spreading it if you go somewhere or if you get a test when you return, then maybe you wouldn't have to quarantine in your home state. But it's not always going to be easy for travelers to do. So where do we go to get our tests? I know there's a lot of different options and all, but some of them are free testing sites. Some of them you have to pay for. Where should we be looking to see where we can actually get a test? So I spoke with Dr. Lin Chen, who is an expert in the travel medicine world, and she recommended that your first step should be to talk to your primary care provider because the testing landscape is so different depending on where you live your primary care provider should know what the best options are for you. And if that doesn't work for you, you should look at both your city or your state health department website, because more often than not, they're going to have updated list of where you can get tests. And there are test sites popping up all over. A lot of fire departments will have them. You can find them at hospitals, different travel clinics. There's a lot of different options. Pharmacies are doing them. So it comes down to what's available near you. Can you get an appointment or is a walk-in available? And if you need one, maybe you need a doctor's prescription to be able to get it done. It really varies. And the test that you want, you want to get a diagnostic test. I know there's testing for antibodies and all that, but Mm -hmm. you want that diagnostic test to see if you had the virus at that moment, basically. Right. You want to see, do I have the coronavirus right now because I don't want to spread it as I travel? Or if you're going to go see loved ones, you obviously don't want to give it to your loved ones. One thing that Dr. Chen did note is that right now, not all of the coronavirus tests are accurate. So you may get the negative test results, think I'm good to go, but there is a chance that you got the test too early or the test reveals a false result. So It is something that you can take some comfort in, but know that you are, it's not foolproof. It's not 100%. Now, this is probably the big one is the timing of the test. And this is the one that I was so nervous about because Mm. some of the rules are, you know, 72 hours before you travel and all. And it's like, well, if I take my test here, will I get my results by the time I'm flying away? That was one of the Mm -hmm. big concerns. So that's the timing of it is one of the most crucial parts of it. 
in your case, going to a place like Hawaii or going to a place where you need to show proof that you have a negative test, it can be really tricky to plan getting the test back in time because in a lot of places we're seeing delays in return tests. So right now, a way to have less test timing anxiety, Dr. Chen said to try to plan this out way ahead of time. And once you get your results, then you'll have to deal with, okay, I had to quarantine at home for a little longer than I expected, but that's better than being denied your trip to a place because you didn't get your test back in time. But a lot of places are looking at a four to five day return time. And that is definitely not the case everywhere, though. Some people, it takes 12 days to get a result. Some days, it could be two days. So it's a lot of different things. But ask the person where you're getting a test what the estimate should be before you do this test and try to have loose travel plans in case you need to accommodate for either a positive test result or a delayed test result cross that your, could change your travel plan. Cross your fingers at that point right there. And then, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, testing before and after, should you get tested upon your return from your trip? I guess that would depend on where you went. If you went to visit a small group of family, maybe not so. But if you're doing anything that's around a lot of people, you might want to get tested when you come back. Absolutely. And I spoke with a journalist who had gone on a road trip across the country with his niece to drive her to college. And he didn't get a test before he left for that road trip. He got one at the end of his six-day trip before he could fly back to his home state of Maine. Because if you don't get that test result, he would have had to do a 14-day quarantine at his home. So to avoid that, he got a COVID test on the back end of his trip. But also, like you said, if you were partaking in any quote-unquote high-risk activity while you're traveling, you might not want to bring it home to your loved ones or your place of work. So getting a test after your trip or at the end of the trip can help in that case. Yeah, and with all of this, you know, a negative test is not a free pass. You still got to be careful, you know, wear your mask, avoid the big crowds like you were just saying, and keep doing Mm -hmm. the social distancing. You got to take care of yourself whenever you're traveling outside of your bubble, so to speak. But these are just some good tips on what to look for when trying to get tested before you're going to go out on one of your trips. Natalie Compton, reporter at the Washington Post travel destination, by the way. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's an interesting story about Hawaii. As the pandemic worked its way through the United States, Hawaii had a handle on its cases very early on. Recently, however, case counts and hospitalizations have started to creep up as a result of complacency by residents and a lack of preparation by officials. Critics say that Hawaii never stepped up in getting all the contact tracers that it needed. Quarantine measures for travelers are still in place, and the opening of the state has continued to be delayed. For more on what happened to Hawaii, we'll speak to Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. So just a few months ago, Hawaii had the fewest cases per capita in the whole country. They obviously have some geographic advantages. It's easier to close your borders and know who's coming in when you are an island in the middle of the ocean than easier than other states. So they took a lot of precautions early on and it really paid off and their case count was extremely low. And then they did not use that time period to build up the testing and contact tracing infrastructure necessary for a surge and inevitably a surge came. Once businesses reopened, people gathered together again. It really took off over the July 4th weekend. 
people not wearing masks, people gathering together, and the state didn't have enough testing and contact tracing services and the workforce needed, and now they're scrambling to build it up now. The Surgeon General flew all the way there to open up a testing site, a surge testing site, and now they're scrambling to contain things, and a lot of officials there and folks we talked to in the health world say this could have been avoided if we did this preparation ahead of time rather than doing it after things have gotten this bad. It's kind of the same tale that we saw throughout the country. Various states who started off well, then they got complacent and the public kind of got complacent as well. Nobody really prepared for that second wave or another surge. And then boom, you're hit with a bunch of rising cases. So in Hawaii, as you mentioned, one of the biggest things was the contact tracing effort. They said the state needs about 400 contact tracers. They have about 100. So I know that's been one of the biggest points of contention there. Definitely. And so they are hiring more now, trying to build that out now, train people. But again, this this is challenging work and it takes time to hire and train people. And the frustration a lot of folks communicated to us is that we could have known ahead of time that this would have been necessary and done this preparation work when cases were low and we had a little breathing room instead of doing it now once we're really under the gun. So what were some of the other points that went wrong from my reading in the article? The administration got a little complacent. And what they did, though, was they started opening up some of this indoor dining stuff, the salons, before doing things in outdoor spaces, like opening up some of the beaches and hiking trails. So they kind of did it opposite. The public health experts I talked to were really baffled by this. And this has been an issue in other states as well. So the virus spreads most easily in enclosed environments. If we're in a restaurant indoors talking and eating, it's much easier for it to spread and for people to get infected than in outdoor spaces where the air is circulating and the virus can disperse and the sunlight helps as well. And yet Hawaii opened up. People could go to malls and restaurants and nail salons before they could go to some of the beaches and parks and hiking trails. And this is just the opposite of what public health guidance recommends. What has been the response from Governor David Ige? I know he is still saying, well, you know, we did uh, a lot of good things for the state. You know, our numbers are low and still relative to the country. The numbers are very low there. But uh, Mm -hmm. he kind of threw it on the public saying they got complacent. And as you mentioned earlier, Fourth of July was a big one. Everybody went out and started partying. Additionally, some state leaders have said no amount of contact tracing could have prevented this. The response from the public health community is yes, but it could have massively helped. I mean, every time you contact someone and say you were exposed, please stay home, that breaks the chain of transmission and prevents it from spreading even further. And so even if there would have been some surge due to Fourth of July and people getting complacent and not wearing masks, contact tracing always helps. So yes, but I think it is very telling. This is sort of breaking news. The head of the health department just resigned one day after our story ran. He's been there for decades and he just retired. So I think that is a sign that there is somewhat of a reckoning around the state's officials response to this. So what kind of restrictions do they have right now? Because I know for a long time they were doing the, you know, if you arrived into the state, you had to do a 14-day quarantine. Early on, they did lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. It seems like they have some of those in place again, I think. So they're putting them in place just for Oahu, where it's the worst right now. But it could extend to the other islands, depending on how things go. So there is a new stay-at-home order there. Bars are closing 
And like you said, the economy is so heavily dependent on tourism that folks are really suffering there. The unemployment rate is in the double digits and the date for reopening to tourism keeps getting pushed back further and further as these outbreaks are getting worse and hospitalizations are way up. And even though the state has had a very low number of deaths throughout the pandemic, a big chunk of those have happened in the last couple of weeks, which is a very troubling sign. Hopefully they can get it together. And then, you know, as we've just been saying, since they're so heavily relying Mm -hmm. on tourism, they can open the state back up so that they can get that back in order as well. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally for this week, America is running low on a crucial resource for coronavirus vaccines and drugs, monkeys. The pandemic has created a huge demand for monkeys as research test subjects. There has been a drop in supply from China, which supplied 60% of monkeys imported into the U.S. last year. And we were already dealing with decreased numbers. For more on how we're short on these animals desperately needed for research and development, we'll speak to Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Monkeys are typically kind of the last step before a human clinical trial. So the way development for a vaccine or a treatment might work is that you might start with mice or ferrets or hamsters, and you go to something closer to a human, which are monkeys, and then you finally go into humans. The species are usually used a lot of biomedical research. There are two species in macaques, rhesus macaques and cyanomogus macaques. And the reason we're experiencing shortage is threefold. Well, first is just we're in this pandemic, right? So there's just like a huge interest in testing therapies, testing vaccines, testing possible drugs. So there's just like a huge demand. And the second reason is supply related, which is that a lot of the monkeys that get used in biomedical research in the U.S. actually come from China. China is a big supplier of monkeys for biomedical research around the world. Last year, the U.S. imported about 35,000 monkeys total. 60% of them came from China. And when the pandemic started, China actually just shut off all exports. So you can imagine this is thousands of monkeys that would normally be coming here being used in experiments, and they're not here anymore. The third reason, a little bit more subtle, is that there has been ongoing shortages and difficult getting monkeys for lots of researchers over the past few years. This has to do actually with the fact that funding for primate research can be hard to come by in the U.S. It's expensive. And a lot of the kind of breeding and energy has in fact shifted to China. Yeah, I mean, there was even discussion by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, to make a strategic monkey reserve, you know, in case something (laughs) happens that never got underway. And now we're experiencing this shortage. And then, you know, specific to COVID-19, monkeys that are infected with that are kept in special labs because they don't want anything to get out. So special labs that have ventilation requirements so things don't get out. And there's a limited number of those as well. Um, Monkeys with COVID have to be kept in what are called animal biosafety level three labs. And the point is that, of course, you don't want this uh, the monkey to first infect humans. You also don't want the monkey to infect other monkeys in the colony, because if you infect all the monkeys in the colony, first of all, some of them might get sick and die, but then you also can't use them for research anymore. So there's a really limited amount of space there in these particular labs. There's only a certain number in the U.S. So this, this is kind of like an additional logistic problem on like just the pure number of monkeys. And as you were saying, you know, the, the phrase strategic monkey reserve, this is like a funny phrase. Right, exactly. um, it was brought up specifically in the context of a possible pandemic. Like if we have a new disease, we might need to study it. We might need more monkeys. So, you know, this is very much a predicted problem that we're having right now. There's a lot of other animals that are used, as you mentioned earlier, not just monkeys. But one of the other things they say, you know, with regards to COVID-19, maybe they're not the best animal model 
for the disease because specifically they usually only get mildly sick from COVID-19. So if we want to study the most severe effects, they might not be the right one. And as you mentioned, it was kind of a, we could see this coming, the shortage coming, but there's so much that goes into it. Breeding more monkeys here in the U.S. would take a long time. It's very expensive. We just don't have that infrastructure set up to house and care for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, what we're seeing because we're having this current crunch is first scientists thinking about creative ways to use fewer monkeys. So one of the things that they're talking about is that there's kind of a network of nationally funded national primary research centers around the country that are kind of like the locus for a lot of the academic research involving non-human primates. So what they're talking about doing is sharing controlled arms. And what that means is that usually when you run an experiment, you give some number of monkeys, for example, the new drug. And then you have a control arm, which is the monkeys that you don't give them anything. And this kind of gives you a baseline for comparison. So what they're talking about doing is like sharing control arms between different labs so that you can use fewer number of monkeys total. Another issue is, as you mentioned, you know, can we use other animals? Primate research is usually not kind of undertaken lightly in the U.S. because it is very expensive. And even in normal conditions, you can only get a limited number of animals. So a lot of times you have to think about what exactly about the disease we want to study. And are primates the best example of that? And as you were saying, monkeys tend not to get very sick with covid so if you want to study like a really serious illness, like you want to study if a drug will work in people who are so ill that they need to be in a ventilator, maybe monkey is not the best model or certainly not the best first model to go into. On the other hand, in some ways, the fact that they don't get seriously ill is actually reflects what happens in humans, right? The vast majority of humans who get COVID also don't get seriously ill. So, you know, in some ways, this is saying it's not great to study a serious, like a model of serious illness in monkeys, but maybe that also kind of reflects their closeness to us. The phrase that gets used a lot in scientific research is non-human primates, which is also kind of a funny phrase because it kind of reminds us, oh, we are also primates. We have to say that these have to specify these are non-humans. And one of the other difficulties, and this is kind of the sad part with regards to COVID-19 specifically, we can't reuse those monkeys in other studies. They actually euthanize those just to prevent spread to other monkeys or even other humans potentially. So the cost just kind of keeps going up with all of that. Earlier, we were talking about how the monkeys with COVID have to be kept in these special biosafety lab spaces. The problem, as scientists told me, is that you can't take them out, which is why you have to euthanize them, because once you take them out, there's the fear that they could spread to humans or that they could spread to other monkeys. And as we we're talking about, like if it spreads to the rest of the colony, you could have like a problem on your hands. Well, definitely something that we have to get under control. China's not sharing right now, obviously. They're not uh, providing us with the same amount of animal research subjects that they were before. So that's a concern there. And But we need these things. I know a lot of people don't like to test on animals, but we need these things to see if they're safe and effective before they can get into clinical trials, human trials. And they've done that with some of the ones that we have in the works now. But for now, we have a shortage of those monkeys. Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.